So we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 46. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beast and livestock. These things you carry are born as beasts or born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift it on their shoulders, to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me. You stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I am amazed and awestruck by your sovereign ways that you have kept the revelation to your prophet Isaiah given almost 2,700 years ago in the land desolated by war in Judah and in Israel. And you have kept it throughout all that time by your sovereign hand, not only revealed it, but given it to us so that we might have comfort and we might find grace and we might know the the incomparable God And so we pray, Father, that you would use your word as you will, and we thank you that we are able to receive grace and mercy and strength and hope from what you have revealed about yourself and about what your sovereign hand does throughout all eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Pray that you would attend the preaching. Have you ever uh, heard someone refer to someone else and say, They're their own worst enemy. Maybe it's been said of you. I know for sure it's been said of me, and anyone uh, who is close to me or the closest people to me could probably say, sometimes Eric is his own worst enemy. But what do we mean when we tell someone that, when we say they're their own worst enemy? What are we talking about? We might be saying that they are self-destructive in some ways, that maybe they're stubborn, ignorant, possibly arrogant, Hard-headed, probably, would be the, what comes to mind. This person never learns from their mistakes and never takes counsel. The Puritans sort of had a view like this about the human heart, and they called it the dark guest. In their Puritan prayers, the man who was praying would pray to the Lord that he would subdue this dark guest that is indwelling his heart, a a. a an entity, a power that resides within him that he does not like, but that he cannot get rid of. And this is what happens when, like the people in Isaiah, like Israel, we lose sight of God's providential care in our lives. You might be tempted by the dark guest to not trust in God's word, not trust in his works revealed in his word, but to put our trust in idols. And they could be circumstances that we're trusting in, And we don't remember that God is the one who changes circumstances, just like Israel. He's calling us to remember his faithfulness so that our hearts might be changed. He's calling us to do that today. 
Are you carrying a burden today? Are you burned out today? We use that term sometimes, burned out. Are there pressures and circumstances in your life that are bringing you to despair? Do you try to escape these circumstances? And how do you try to escape these circumstances? Is it by being diverted, by using other sorts of stimuli or uh, pleasures to divert your attention away from the burden that you might be carrying? Do these diversions themselves actually become more of a burden to you when you submit yourselves to them? Whenever you are burdened or you feel burdened, where do you turn to comfort? Do you turn to these things or do you turn to the living God? You see, Isaiah points the way here, not just to Israel, but to us. He reminds us that it is not even that we feel a burden, but that we are burdened. So let's look at our text again. This is the whole point of the text. If you look at your notes, you'll see that so that statement that we put in there. And that so that statement is a codified um, statement of meaning. This is what the text teaches. The text teaches this. Let us remember our incomparable God and his sovereign way so that we might return to him from the burden of powerless idols and stand firm in his prophetic word. All 13 verses of Isaiah 46 could be um, pointed to, the, to this one specific statement. Can, this is what Isaiah teaches. This is the thesis of Isaiah 46. So God shows us in this passage two commands here. There's one command from verses 1 through 7. And the command is to behold the incomparable God. Behold our incomparable God. And the second command, which is verses 8 through 13, remember his prophetic word and stand firm in it. And we've been in the book of Isaiah reading on Sunday mornings, and I want to give you a little bit more of, of a background in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, to Israel, to the Israelites, during a time in which God was judging his people for their unfaithfulness. We can turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and we can see that God, who has brought his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness, who has redeemed them, says, Be faithful to me, your king, your God, and I will bless you in this land that I have promised Abraham. And if you are not faithful to me, you will receive cursings from me, and the land will spit you out. And what has happened here during the time of Isaiah is there's been a line of unfaithful kings who have forgotten the word of God, who have turned away from it, and who have submitted themselves to idol worship and led the people to do the same. And so what God is doing is fulfilling his word, fulfilling his prophetic word of promise that he would bring cursing upon them and they would be spit out of the land. And this is what Isaiah is reminding them of. He's saying, this is why you're here. Isaiah was himself one that needed to be cleansed from sin. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw God seated on the throne, and the angels, the seraphim, were, were shouting, were singing, holy, holy, holy is our God. That Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I lived amongst a people of unclean lips. And he saw the glory of God, and God forgave him of his sin and commissioned him to speak to a people who would not listen. So God promised salvation to Israel through his judgment. He would judge them first and judge all of the nations first. But we do see promise. We see in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin should have a son. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. We see God's overarching domain throughout all history in the book of Isaiah, that he does what he wills. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 25 in our reading this morning. He will bring salvation. And so you can think of Isaiah kind of broken up into two different sections. Chapters 1 through 39 talk about the Assyrian judgment. God is using the nation of Assyria to judge Israel and Judah. And then Hezekiah comes to power. He repents of sin and God relents, being faithful to his covenant. And then afterwards, we have evil kings again. And God uses another nation that he said he would use, Babylon, to finally bring Judah out of the land into exile. And this is the context of Isaiah chapter 46, looking forward to the people and their exile in Babylon. So point number one, verses one through seven, behold our incomparable God. Stop comparing the incomparable 
to that which it cannot be compared to. And Isaiah uses a parody to, to, to teach us something. If we look a little bit further back, though, in, in, in verse, uh, chapter 45, verses 20 through 25, we can get some context. Starting in verse 20, he says, They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God who cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I myself have sworn, from my mouth has gone, gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does it remind you of another text in the New Testament? Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So that's the context leading up previously to Isaiah 46. And so in verses 1 through 2 of 46, we have what I call the parody. There's a comparison here. Isaiah is saying, don't compare God, and this is why. Don't compare the matchless to that that it cannot be compared to. It's making a category mistake comparing God to this. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. They're idols on, on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as beasts or, or burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. So let me give you some background information. Bell and Nebo, how many of you, of you have heard of Bell and Nebo? Do you know who Bell and Nebo are? Just a few of you. Maybe you'd read a commentary on Isaiah, <laughs> figured out who Bell and Nebo are. Bell and Nebo are Babylonian gods. Bell could have been the, another word for the, for the term, or another term for Baal or Baal. Remember him from the Old Testament. It means Lord. Um, there's also some who think that Marduk, one of the, the victors in a kind of a creation narrative, a false creation narrative of Babylonians, uh, was, kind of, was this victorious god, and that his son was Nebo. And you think of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, they named their kings, Babylonian kings, after their gods. So the father is Bel, the son is Nebo. And what they would do is they would have a New Year's festival where they would put these images of the gods and, uh, on carts and, and people would carry them. They would be carried to the middle of the city where their shrine was. And it was supposed that these gods would write down on the tablets of destiny the decree for the year. That the fates would make them write that down on. So they would, they would tell the future. And so Isaiah is saying this, that, that these gods, Bel and Nebo, their, their idols born on beasts of burden have to stoop down to, to, to stop their idols from falling off of these sweaty beasts. So he's transformed this processional into the city, into their temple, into like a political cartoon, a grotesque image of these gods being led into captivity and they can't even save their own images they're falling over. So this is the parody. The gods, they bow down in stoop like they're in worship. They're prostrating themselves in order to save their own images. Is this the character of God? Is this the, the, the God that we compare the living God to? I mean, think about the parallel in Elijah. And you can hear that Isaiah is being very sarcastic in his relation of this kind of parody here. Think about Elijah in 1 Kings 18, where the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves so that they might appease the god Baal, Baal, and that he might perform on their behalf. And Elijah says, he mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or maybe he's relieving himself. Or is he on a journey? Or perhaps he's asleep and must need to be awakened. Sarcasm. Sarcasm here. Their images are born on sweaty beasts, beasts of burden. This, this speaks of the shame of idolatry. 
and they're, and they're carried away on us, on our shoulders, just as we are thought of as beasts of burdens, in sweat and in shame, and beasts are unreasonable, and they're unthinking, and that's what idolatry does. They cannot save their images, these gods, from captivity, nor can they save their worshipers. They're powerless to do so. There's nothing real behind these gods, behind these images. They cannot save their own idols from falling over and, and being led into captivity. They were impotent. In fact, their worshipers must stabilize their idols. Their worshipers must hold up their idols. This is how all other religions work. All other religions based on false views of God, an idol, are works-based religions. You have to work. You have to carry them. You have to keep them up. But the biblical religion is one of grace, and we'll see that coming up. Babylon is being judged as well for their idolatry, and Israel is judged for participating in their idolatry. They're already in exile. You see, Bel and Nebo are forgotten gods. The, the man on the street has no idea who Bel and Nebo are, but they know who Jesus is. They know who Yahweh is, the living God. They might not call him Yahweh, but they know the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament and in the New so they really have been led into captivity. So this is the parody. These false gods being led into captivity with their worshipers. Now there's the reality of the incomparable. We'll see this in verses 3 through 7. But I want you to look at verse 5. To whom will you, like it? will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? So now God is going to say, this is what I'm alike. And he starts in verse 3 and he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob all the remnant of the house of Israel. He calls them the house of Jacob. He's reminding them of their identity. They're in exile right now. They've been spat out of the land by God's prophetic promise and covenant curse because they did not obey. And they're in a land where they might be discouraged. Is God going to fulfill his promise to us? And he reminds them, you're the house of Jacob. You're the house of Israel. I called you. I brought you out of Egypt. The land was judged. The land was given. My promises are for you. This is your identity. You see, God formed the people. He formed his people, not the other way around, which is idolatry, people forming their gods. He talks about his fatherly care of them. If you look at the end of verse 3, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save. <clears throat> this is an emphatic I here. Do you see all the eyes? I will carry, I will save, I will bear, I have made. God is saying, I do all this. And this emphatic I is coupled with a verb that means to shoulder. God himself shoulders his own people. And he carries them. He takes up their burden for them. He takes them up just like a burden. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 30 through 31, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. All that way you went until you came to this place. God carries his people and he carries us as a father carries his child. There's also overtones of what Psalm 28 verse 9 teaches, that God carries us like a shepherd carries the sheep. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And there's also an image of him carrying us as an eagle would carry her eaglets in Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out myself. And again, further down in Isaiah 63, verse 9, in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his uh, presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. For those of you who have kids, you might think about carrying your kids to bed. You carry them. You bear them up. 
And sometimes your children, just like we are, are stubborn, and they're ungrateful, and they're ignorant, and yet we carry them. We look past these things because we love them, we carry them. And this is not a flimsy kind of love, it's a compassionate love. It's a stern love. But you see, God surpasses these metaphors because he even carries them to their old age. Now, we get old, our children might carry us, probably will carry us, but God, no. God will continue to carry us even until the gray hairs, is what it says in Isaiah 46. In Isaiah 43, 5 through 7, he says, Do not fear, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You see, God transcends even the imagery of history and creation. He carries Israel to her old age. And she might be thought of as old right now. The calling of Abraham. The exodus about 1400 B.C., 1500, and now we're in exile, looking forward in the prophetic word, maybe 500 B.C. She's old, and he carries her throughout history as one who lives outside of history. He's not bound to the creation. He's the creator. The idols can't do that. They are a part of the creation, and God carries his own images. You see the, the contrast there? Instead of us carrying images and idols, God carries us whom he made in his own image, whom he is restoring in the image of his son. We are alive and not like the lifeless idols. One commentator says, he who made you and the whole world who providentially sustained you is able to deliver you from anything. There's irony, quoting the same commentator, when all that is said and done, a thing that cannot help itself, cannot help you, in contrast to the idols. So God providentially sustains. Do we believe this? Do we really believe this? Do we trust this? Do we turn to other things so that they might deliver us from our circumstances or might even bring us the smallest of treasures or pleasures that our burdens might be lifted by them? Do we understand that these burdens that we bear are the burdens of our own making when we deny the faithfulness of God revealed in his word? And these can be often distractions and diversions, especially in our culture. We're distracted by everything in our culture, and it offers a tiny bit, bit of, of comfort to us, but it will never satisfy. Now, don't get me wrong. What God makes us good in the creation is good if it's received with thanksgiving and prayer. But our sinful hearts are idol factories, and they will turn the, the goodness of God's creation into an idol, and we will bow down and we worship it. And we say to this God, deliver me, but it doesn't answer. We remake it so that it can serve us. That's the heart of idolatry. And it is a human activity, by the way. Let's look at what God says in verse 6, right? Don't compare me to these idols, because I carry you, I take care of you. And now what are these? What's the reality of these idols? What is the reality of what people think of as Bel and Nebo? You know, these gods behind the images. He says, verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh it out, silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they fall down and they, and they worship. It's a, it's a human activity. It's made from God's substance, gold and silver, and yet it's a human activity. It's poured. It's a human construct. You fashion it with your own imagination. Idols truly are figments of our imagination, using the materials that God has provided, and yet they, they do not answer. Why? Because they're not real. Because we made them up. It's lifeless. It's nothing. It really is a nothing. And yet we do this with such precision, don't we? We weigh it out. Look at the metaphor, you weigh it out. We construct these idols, and it's not in a haphazard way, but
but in a calculated way because that's the disposition of our hearts. They're calculating in that way. The dark guest, remember, does these things. And then we spend on our idols. We hire people to make idols for us. And idol worship and idol making is a very lucrative and cultural endeavor. All we have to do is look at you know, what happens between Black Friday and December 25th. And we can see that it, idol making can be a lucrative endeavor. Look at the, the skill of the goldsmith. There's people in our culture who actually make their living off of selling idolatry. It's the same thing in Paul's day in the New Testament. If we look at Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 27, at about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he had gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from, that, uh, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods are made with hands and are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." So when we are speaking the truth of God's word, especially in Isaiah 6, that these idols are real, they're nothing, they cannot save, and we make them up, and we need to be careful about them. That's not a popular message in the culture that is about self-indulgence and doing what you want. Not only this, but idols are sold from many pulpits, so-called pulpits today. And it's a blasphemous activity where so-called preachers make up their own versions of God, and it's not tied to his word. And they sell them to people, and they offer them hope, and they will not deliver. They give no hope. Oh, be burdened for those who sit under false teaching so that you might expose the idolatry and expose them to the one who is incomparable. Help them to do that. You see, an idol is more than an image. It's proclaiming a God that does not exist and cannot save. It's lifeless. It depends on the worshiper. And it depends on the worshiper for mobility. You have to put it on your shoulder. Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So we must bear the burden of making our own gods and holding them up ourselves and moving them around ourselves. Do you feel burdened by things that you feel like you have to continue to hold up, that you have to continue to carry and bear? If people choose to make their own gods, as someone has said, they will have to carry what they have made. When they put the god down, it will not move an inch from where it has been. Would we compare our maker and only savior to that? Certainly not. That's what he says. Another one says, it is absurd that such a God could be the object of salvation. And we have many examples of this. You can think of many. I can mention a few. We can think of money. We can idolize money, success, perfect circumstances, perfect family, entertainment, security, false religion. In, in the season we're in right now, bipartisan politics can become an idol. That is trusting in men, trusting in the government, trusting in our health. But you know what? They promise things, but they do not deliver. They never will deliver. They do not deliver satisfaction. How can something that is nothing, right? We're saying idols are nothing. Isaiah is saying an idol is nothing. It's made up. How can something that's nothing give us so much heartache and pain? How can it do that? Well, because there's something else going on here. Isaiah doesn't mention it, but the New Testament does and the rest of Scripture does. There's something more sinister and deceptively satanic going on behind idolatry. If we look at 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may, they may, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things uh, are all things and through whom we exist. And then like two chapters later, so he just says, hey, an idol has no real existence. There's nothing behind an idol. And then two chapters later in chapter 10, verses 18, 18 through 20, he says, consider the people of Israel. Look back toward the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That, a, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, going all the way back to God's remembrance of the covenant, he says, they sacrifice to demons that were no gods. You see, the, you see how it puts them all together? Demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, capital R, the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Now, so we can think about it in this way. The, the proclamation of idolatry from heretical and false religions Say like Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, you know, the prosperity gospel and charismatic theology are just figments of depraved minds. They're made up gods. They're no gods. They do not exist. And yet at the same time, what they offer people and what they promise people are incited by demons. They're incited and influenced by demons. These nothings, these nothings are heretical and dangerous to believe. Can you believe that? These nothings are heretical and dangerous to believe. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because they enslave you to that which cannot save, and they blind you, and they desensitize you spiritually. That's what idols do. We can't blame everything on Satan, even though he's behind the scenes veiling the minds of the unbelieving so that they do not trust in the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. We find no shortage of desires or affections in our own hearts to twist the word of God, or what God has made so that we might adore the creation above the creator. So before we're so arrogant to think of the blatant idolatry that happens maybe in third world countries where people actually do bow down before a statue, or before we are so arrogant to look at what happens in um, a, a false teaching, false prophetic kind of culture, that does not honor God, let's first take the plank out of our own eye. Our hearts, too, are the refinery that melts down silver and gold, and our minds hammer out and fashion and mold idols out of ideas, out of values, out of personalities, groups, out of our own hobbies. What we like to devote our worship to, our time to, our money to, our lives to, Anything we fasten our identity to is an idol, if it's other than the true God. We look for peace and comfort in. We trust to secure our well-being and deliver us from, in times of trial, in times of circumstance, in times of despair, just like Israel's experiencing here in exile. If it's not the God of Jacob, it is an idol. And these things only lead into captivity. And shame and disgrace attend that kind of worship. Shame and disgrace attend all those who trust in a man-made religion. And as the scripture says, they are like sweaty beasts. So ironically, the nothings are no gods, and they enslave. There's irony there, right? So people, the worshipers here in Isaiah 46, you and me, were crushed under the weight of deception. We're crushed under the weight of nothing, except the effects of rebellion in our own hearts. We're crushed under the weight of our sinful desires, worshiping that which is not real to the pleasure of demons. Think about it that way. So we're called, now how do we, how do we get out of this? We're called to behold our incomparable God by disdaining the thought of comparing him to anyone or anything else that, might, that we might think carries us or saves us, especially inanimate objects that are made up by us to serve us, that we are not the ones to be served, but we should be thinking about how we serve the incomparable God. So God commands us to stop exchange, exchanging 
the truth of God for a lie if you look at Romans 1 and to worship the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He also commands us as weary rebels to remember his ways and his words. So remember the incomparableness of God and remember his ways and his words. So let me, let me get that so that statement to you again. Let us remember our incomparable God and his sovereign ways. Why? So that we might return to him from the burden of powerless idols and stand firm in his prophetic word. So let's look at verses 8 through 12 now. Point two, remember and listen to God's prophetic word and stand firm. What are we talking about here? We're saying remember and listen to God's ways that he's revealed, which reveals his character. Now, what I want to do here and what I think Isaiah does here is he connects God's sovereign ways to his prophetic word. He says, remember, that's an imperative. Remember, stand firm, recall to your mind. Those are all imperatives. Here is what we see in contrast to the works of man-made religions and idols is that they function as burdens, but the one who is incomparable carries us by grace, and that's what we're called to remember. So how should we remember? Where do we start in this? We start by searching our memories. This is what Isaiah is saying, that memory is the antidote to your despair that is brought about by your burden. And it's not just any memory, it's memory of God's works in his word and his sovereign ways. And you know what he calls us here, just like the people of Israel, transgressors. So he says in verse 8, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, you lawbreakers. Remember the former things of old. We are to stand firm in God's remembrance of his sovereign ways the memory of his works in Israel, right, on his people's behalf, because why? They're, they're designed to jolt them out of her dangerous and sinful state of mind. That was, that's the purpose of memory, to jolt you out of your sinful state of mind and dangerous state of mind. You see, she was her own worst enemy, just like we are our own worst enemies, and memory functions, memory of God's works functions to jolt us out of these things. This is why we sing the hymns. This is why Christian biography and history is good to read. It jolts us out of um, the, the blindness that has come about because we live in a culture full of idols and we've been enticed by them. This same kind of thought is in 1 Corinthians uh, 16, verse 13. Be watchful, Paul says. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Isaiah is saying, God is saying through Isaiah, stop wavering toward unbelief. Stop, stop your tendencies toward unbelief. He says, bring this again to mind because idolatry has a dulling effect on the mind. It spiritually desensitizes you to God's works, his word, and dulls the conscience so that it is that much harder to behold the lovely, the good, and the beautiful revealed in Jesus, revealed in the Father, revealed in the Holy Spirit as revealed in God's word. So this is the antidote to unbelief. It's memory. However many rough patches, one commentator says, there may be in his relationship with them along the way, that is Israel, it is the Lord's grace rather than their sinfulness that will triumph in the end. So look with me, verse 9. How do we remember these things? He says, remember the former things of old. Remember your identity in me. For, for us, looking back on the cross, it's remember that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you were sons of disobedience, that you were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air in a whole environment full of idolatry that you could not grab a bootstrap to pull yourself up out of. And what did I do? I made you alive together with Christ and seated you in the heavenlies with him. He's saying, remember that. His ways reveal that he is the true God. So look at verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done. His ways are not our ways. You know, there, there's a tendency, again, because we have a tendency toward idolatry, is for us to think that God only works in certain ways. 
or that he's going to work in ways that are common sense to us, that he's going to do it this way or he's going to do it that way. And God's going to tell Israel using his prophetic word, no, don't think that way. That's, that's tending toward idolatry. We need to look at his record of divine care, someone says. And he says it this way, love is robust and rebukes. We're called transgressors, right? It's not weak and indulgent. It's not like the watered-down, human-centered doctrines that you might encounter out there in the culture. Again, we are making God in our image when we think of this kind of love because it doesn't reflect the robust and caring and fatherly love and discipline of our God. The former things recorded for Israel's memory, the creation, the flood, the patriarchs, the exodus, the judges, the conquest, David, Solomon, they're all so that they might turn from their idolatry. And and God uses three participles here. He uses three participles through, through the prophet Isaiah. He says, he declares, he says, and he calls. Declaring, saying, calling. And let me say something about what we normally call predictive prophecy. I think you know, we can think about maybe changing the wording to, to reflect something a little bit better. God's not predicting what he's going to do. God is planning what he's going to do, and he does it. And he says, this is what shows that I'm God. I planned it. I did it. And this is what we see in Isaiah 46. So it's not like I predicted the lottery numbers, and then they came true. No, I plan to do this for you, and I fulfilled my promise. I fulfilled my word. That's what the prophetic word is. So he says he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So again, there's this unshakable connection between God's promise and God's fulfillment of the promise, God's performance. Saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, He exercises complete divine fiat. His counsel stands. Now again, he says, calling a bird of prey from the east, that is, calling the man of my counsel from a far country. See, God here is prophesying. He's saying what he's going to do is he's going to have a Gentile king. Now these are people who are hoping in a Davidic king, right? They're in exile. They know, you know, Jesus encountered this in his days where the Pharisees said, hey, Abraham's our father, so we're cool with God, right? And Jesus said, no, like you're not the children of Abraham, not by blood. You believe in me, you'll be children of Abraham. And so that, that, they couldn't see that God was doing something in a different way. It was according to their own mind, their own construct of who God was in their mind. And so this is what God's doing. He said, I'm going to call a Gentile from a far country. This is my divine plan for my people. And he says, this Gentile is going to fall on Babylon just like a hawk falls on a rabbit, like a bird of prey. He speaks of, of Cyrus, which is the man who did this. He was a, um, a, from, from the Medes, he was Persian and conquered Babylon during that time and actually brought is, Israel back into the land, decreed that Israel should go back into the land and rebuild the temple. So Isaiah 41, 25 through 26, I stirred up one from the north, and he has said, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name, he shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as potter treads clay, clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words, only God. What he declares comes true. This actually reveals... That he is not like the idols, Bel and Nebo, who go into procession and write on the tablets of destiny like a horoscope or something. He's not like that. He declares the beginning from the end. He's done it from the beginning of history. Israel, you, me, we need to look back on that. The whole sweep of history, including what's gone on in the past and what we'll look forward to when we get to verses 12 and 13 in the future, All show God is God, that everything in history and in creation does what it does at the dictate of his word. So Bel and Nebo are gone, right? They never were here to begin with, but they're gone. The memory of them is gone. The memory of that idol is gone. Cyrus conquers Babylon. He executes God's just just plan, a judgment on Babylon, right? Are we in there yet in our scripture reading? 
We're in the oracles of nations. We're in that particular part of Scripture, God says, I'm going to judge the nations. Babylon's one of them. So he does that. He said, Bel and Nebo are carted off into captivity, never to be thought of again, to go into obscurity, and God uses a Gentile to accomplish his purpose, and Israel might have a problem with that. This is why it's foolish to compare the incomparable to anything else. This is why they were rebels, and this is why we are rebels. So Israel treated God, like we sometimes can, like one of her idols. In her stubbornness, she thought that God might fulfill his promise and provide salvation for them according to what she thought he would do. Traditional means, you know, intuitive, common sense. God exists to do things according to my timeline and my criteria. We don't probably say it that way, but we might often think that way. So God calls Cyrus, this bird of prey, as someone said, the commentator, a a rapacious victor under divine compulsion. Sounds so poetic. I like the way you put it. A rapacious victor under divine compulsion. God moves the heart of the king there and uses him, a pagan king, not a Davidic one, to accomplish his divine purpose, to fulfill his divine word, what he would say, to bring about his divine intention, And he planned it out in his divine wisdom. So he used divine action through a king who was a complete unbeliever. Do we trust God in this way? That he will accomplish his purpose, his sovereign will in our lives and bring it about using godless people, godless cultures, godless governments, Do we think that way? Do we think that every single thing works out for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose? So God was calling Israel to listen and to believe and to stop being stubborn and to trust. Will we do the same? Will we as God's people in this age remain stubborn and hard-headed? Or or will we be able to, by God's grace, to focus on, not on our immediate circumstances and the terrible reality of our surroundings, which is becoming more hostile, to not do that, but to focus on our incomparable God and his prophetic word. The word of God says that if we remain stubborn, it is only because we've trusted in other gods and we've trusted in the culture, we've trusted in rulers and leaders, in our own wisdom instead of him. And when I think about this, I think of three kinds of idolaters, three kinds of people that are stubborn. You know, we, if we have kids, again, you know, this metaphor is in here. Our kids can be stubborn, and yet we still carry them and hold them. We don't stop feeding them, right, because they're stubborn. <laughs> no, we take care of them. We love them. But in this, there might be three kinds of idolaters, that, re- and we might reflect one or two of these at different times or even oscillate between two states of mind. Um, depending on where we are in our spiritual growth and in our faithfulness and in what God's doing in our lives. So number one, there's those who disbelieve and trust idols and they have hard hearts and they're arrogant and they do not even consider the need for deliverance. They would say, I don't need to be delivered from anything. I'm happy completely the way that I am, completely in my circumstances. These are unbelievers, complete hardness of heart, trusting. They can only trust in idols without regeneration. Then number two, those who recognize their spiritual need, but they vacillate. There might be a double-mindedness here. They vacillate between belief and unbelief. I think of the man who came to Jesus in Mark 9, verse 24, and asked Jesus, and Jesus asked him, do you believe? And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. Which, by the way, saving faith often looks like that. Help my unbelief. And then three, there are those who recognize, and this kind of bleeds into two, those who recognize their spiritual poverty because God is dealing with them. There might be seasons in your life where you recognize God is dealing with you more than other times. And he's reminding them of their pride and their idolatry in order to demonstrate his grace in them and through them and to them. So God's description of Israel in verse 12 really applies to all of us. Stubborn, transgressor, 
rebel. That's why the title of the sermon is Hope for the Rebellious and Weary Idolater. Hard hearts need to listen to God's future plans. Look at verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who think of think of God in, in a fatherly way, saying, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you you own worst enemy. You who are far from righteousness, I will bring my righteousness near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I'll put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God call, is calling his people here headstrong, strong willed, stubborn. And in their captivity, they were asking themselves, is God really strong enough to snatch us from the gods of Babylon? Would he even want to save us since our sins have been so grievous against God that we are in exile in a land that it's not our own? Is the conquest of Babylon by another pagan, Cyrus, this bird of prey from the east, is that an acceptable mode of deliverance? Might be asking themselves, we might be asking ourselves that question. See, in our times of trial... And of great trial, when the pressures of life and the, and the burdens that we carry are unknown idols that we might not be aware, aware of at the time, they weigh us down and are heavy on us. This is the question that we often ask ourselves. What is God's mode of deliverance? We might be discouraged by our sin, but blind to real heart issues. We might be wondering if God is really there since he's not rescued us yet. Where is God? You sometimes feel like your prayers just hit the ceiling. We might be scared to admit this. We, might, we were scared to be exposed as a rebel and an idolater while we pray for deliverance from, from that which enslaves us. All the while, we're looking for tiny bits of rest and satisfaction in diversions and the delights of Babylon. And knowing that they will not satisfy, yet we still go back. This is God's will for you, by the way that you might come to know this, that your heart is stubborn and rebellious, that there's a dark guest within. It reminds me of a hymn that I recently read and have been singing by John Newton in 1779. He wrote this. It's called These Inward Trials. He says that he asked the Lord that he might know or that he might grow in faith and in love and in every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. He said the Lord taught me to pray this way. And I trust that he's answered my prayer, but it's been in such a way that's almost brought me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That's his, his mode of deliverance he was looking for. That God's constraining power would stop him from sinning. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul on every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my hope, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord reply, I answer prayer for grace and faith. God says, to, says in this hymn, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break your schemes of earthly joy that, they, that thou mates or may find thy all in me. He says to Israel that he will bring his righteousness near. He will be faithful to his covenant promises, which we see New Testament overtones of this, my righteousness. Think of Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, rebels, transgressors, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 1.28-31. God shows what is low and despised in the world. Those who bear idols on their shoulders and go into captivity as weary beasts in their shame. That's low and despised. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 
His deliverance is near, but the people can't see it because they're blinded by their idolatry. They're far from his righteousness because they don't believe. But guess what? So does God not bring it because they're blinded and stubborn? No, he brings it because he's faithful. His salvation does not delay. In verse 13, he will give salvation to Zion. Isaiah here is looking forward to the restoration of of Zion, Jerusalem, the city, and the operation of its temple, which is part of Israel's glory. One commentator says it this way, and I thought it was very ironic since we're talking about irony and parody here. This commentator is a uh, covenant theologians of covenant theologians, which means he doesn't see a future for Israel and Jerusalem in a millennial kingdom. And he says, in the last days, Many nations will flow to Jerusalem to hear the word of the Lord. As a consequence, a worldwide kingdom of peace will be established, will be established. The king of this great empire will be the promised descendant of David, a consummate manifestation of God with us. He shall be provided supernaturally, born of a virgin. And this, this guy is old Palmer Robertson, covenant theologians of covenant theologians. And yet I think he was just saying this is what Isaiah's message is. I don't know how we would interpret it from, that on, from then on, but this is what Isaiah is saying. This is what the text is saying, that God will bring his salvation to Jerusalem, to Zion, to Israel. He grants his incomparable glory to, to Israel. The focal point is that salvation comes to Zion, which now lays desolate, and Israel in captivity. And God is saying, I'm going to use a Gentile to bring you back into the land and not only that, I'm going to bring my righteousness near. I'm going to bring glory back to Zion, which has been decimated and crushed. He will crown it with glory. Now, do you believe him? Do I believe him that he will do this and that he has begun to do this in the, the death, resurrection, and ascension and bringing of the spirit of Jesus Christ, looking forward to his return and millennial kingdom, looking forward to the splendor of Israel, See, the idolater, this is another quote here, intends to make God in his image according to his imagination and his desire. We don't want to do that. We want to look at God's word. What does God's word say? God purposes to restore his people in his own image so they might be beautiful and glorious to him, to be lovely in Christ, the beloved. This is not a, you know, your, your study guide is going to talk about open theism. What is open theism? And this addresses it, but this is not primarily a philosophical treaty on open theism, this is a gospel proclamation that Isaiah is preaching here. Will you trust God's sovereign will? Do not be burdened, you who are weary and hopeless. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew, 18, or Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you give up your biblical faith and get sucked into the black hole of the culture, this secularism that refuses the right for you to come to your sense of despair by offering you diversions and distractions, which in turn enslave you? Will you confidently stand firm in God's promise to deliver you and to save you, which he has done and he carries you as a father carries his children, even to your old age, until you perish or our Lord returns. Did these exiles believe this and trust in God? Did they trust in God's prophetic promises? Did the remnant of Jacob in exile look forward to the coming Messiah? You see, as contemporary persons, we carry about many, many idols, a host of gods, and the burden is killing us. It is killing us. So are you burdened today? Frustrated, maybe. In those moments, look to the incomparable God and his incomparable prophetic word. We do swim in a culture of idolatry. We're like what Peter talks about in his books, you know, First and Second Peter. We're elect exiles. We're in a time of exile here, waiting for our Savior. Who and what do you trust to find your hope in? Whenever you feel burdened, distressed, or discouraged, or in despair, do not seek refuge in earthly joys, as John Newton reminds us, because those things won't heal or save. Take up the easy yoke and pray to the one who carries you. 
And may God grant us as rebel sinners grace. And may he break our earthly schemes of joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your prophetic word. We long to understand it. There are so many in our culture and and around us who look to other things other than your character revealed in your word. Help us to help them. Help us to understand that you are the one who carries us even though we're burdened. Help us in the moments of despair when we have taken stock of our own hearts and understood our own tendencies toward idolatry that are all different. We're all different people. That in those moments that you would help us to to trust you and to overcome those things by the power of the Holy Spirit and not trusting in our flesh, not seeking comfort and recognizing that sometimes you make us uncomfortable so that we might understand our need for you and run to you and listen to you and remember you and the things that you've done. Pray that you would do this as we come to a time of thinking about the Savior's death and what it means for us. In Jesus' name, amen.